Hi y'all, I'm Marisa Zapata, and this is the podcast where we examine homelessness by talking to researchers and experts, who of course include people with lived experience of homelessness, to understand what we're missing in the headlines and sound bites. In each episode, we will help clear up misconceptions about homelessness and to answer what it would take to prevent and end homelessness in Portland and beyond. Who am I? I'm an associate professor of land use planning at Portland State University and director of PSU's Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative, a research center dedicated to reducing and preventing homelessness, where we lift up the experiences and perspectives of people of color. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Norwita Milburn and Earl Edwards, researchers from UCLA, talking about key findings from their recent study, Inequity in the Permanent Supportive Housing System in Los Angeles, Scale, Scope, and Reasons for Black Residents' Return to Homelessness. The higher rates of homelessness and inequitable outcomes mirrors trends across the country. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us Today, I am joined by two scholars. Norita Milburn is a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, and Earl Edwards is a doctoral candidate at the same university. I'm going to let them introduce themselves further and how they got to this point in their work. I'm Norita Milburn. I am a community psychologist by training, and I would say that most of my research career has focused on people with lived experience of homelessness. I started this work in the East Coast in Washington, D.C., and continued the work in New York. And when I moved to California, my primary interest is really thinking about prevention and help people exit, first not fall into homelessness, but then exit from homelessness. And the group that I focus on most often are young people with lived experience of homelessness. I also have a really strong commitment to understanding homelessness among people of color, primarily uh, African-Americans. And I came to this work many years ago because of a concern for really understanding what led to homelessness and then also understanding the strengths and resilience that people have with lived experience and how we can build on that strength and resilience to help people exit homelessness and maintain housing stability. Great. Thank you. Earl. Um, Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm a doctoral candidate in the School of Education and Information Studies. My advisor asked me to do a research proposal for students experiencing homelessness in LA County. And I'm a former classroom teacher. I have an administration license to be a principal. And so I started to do that, and I realized that there was a policy that I never heard about, uh, which was the McKinney Mental Homeless Assistance Act. And so I just really got interested in looking more deeply into student homelessness. When I started to do research on student homelessness, uh, one thing I started to notice was there's a lot of Black students who were experiencing homelessness at disproportionate numbers. And so in order to kind of answer that question and better understand that question, I really started looking into structural racism as a lens to be able to kind of better understand the situation. And in addition to looking at students in particular, um, I also have been doing a lot of work in the LA County area. So I was one of the facilitators for their ad hoc um, report on Black people experiencing homelessness. So I led all their um, listening sessions uh, throughout the county. I've been doing work with the county around um, homelessness more broadly. So um, that's kind of how I got into the work. And I'm trying to 
gather as much information as I can from NOAA. So um, when you say the county, you're meaning Los Angeles County? Yes, Los Angeles County. And who is in charge of homelessness there? It's a collaborative. So uh, I've done work with the Los Angeles Homeless uh, Service Authority, um, LASA, as well as the Homeless Initiative, which is led by the county of Los Angeles, in addition to different cities having different individuals that are also working with, within that space. Their continuum of care is very, very wide. Um, and I've had the opportunity to kind of work alongside all of them in the different regions of Los Angeles County. And for listeners, a continuum of care, just to remind everyone, is how the federal government channels money to regions to address homelessness with the idea that we should be able to coordinate care, reduce duplications, and be more efficient. Uh, for those of y'all who are in Portland, the continuum of care for the city of Portland is with Multnomah County. And then the rest of the tri-county area has its own individual continuums. So if you feel like homelessness is a confusing space to work in, you just heard a lot of these acronyms for us and for LA County, and there's even more for LA County. Um, but really, really drew my interest and in what I thought would be great for our listeners to hear about was this report that you had done for the Los Angeles Homelessness Service Agency, also referred to as LASA, specifically looking at the experiences of Black people who are in the homelessness management system coming into homelessness, but then also trying to exit to permanent housing. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little about that report. The work that we did really grew out of the ad hoc committee on Black people with the experience of homelessness in Los Angeles County. I was brought in by the California Policy Lab to begin to help provide the, some of the research that the committee needed in order to do its work. So this study, is it's a small what we call a mixed method study. That means we gather kind of qualitative data interviews as well as quantitative data. And the quantitative data came out of homelessness management information system. And what we did was we really focused on understanding what led to Black people with lived experience of homelessness disproportionately falling out of permanent supportive housing. One of the things that we found uh, was that about one in four Black people, and we're focusing on single adult residents, one in four left placements in a permanent supportive housing. And over kind of a 10-year period between 2010 and 2019, we also found that about 39% of Black uh, permanent supportive housing uh, residents compared to white permanent supportive housing residents were more likely to return to homelessness. And when we do all of the things that we do as researchers to account for all of the factors, variables that might be contributing to this type of finding, we still found that Black residents were still uh, more than 19% more likely than white residents to return to homelessness. So huge problem. LA County has a population that's maybe uh, 6% Black and about 42% of the homeless population are Black. So it's there's the huge health disparity and inequity that we see. But I'm going to let Earl talk about the qualitative findings because he really led this effort. So we started before COVID hit, and so we had to kind of adjust with it. But we were able to talk to 
14 um, project managers of Perms Warehousing, um, 11 case managers that are actually working either directly um, as case managers in Perms Warehousing or we're helping with the housing navigation process, and also um, eight Black residents. We particularly focus on the Black residents, uh, either current or previous Perms Warehousing residents, and centered our report kind of around their experiences and then kind of supplemented um, information with the other um, different populations to really center that voice. Because oftentimes we don't have um, a lot of research that really centers on the lived experience of Black people and then utilizing other types of data to kind of reinforce and also make sense of those experiences. So before we get into more of the findings, I was wondering if y'all could talk a little bit about this pretty dramatic disparity that you're seeing in Los Angeles, I think we see it in probably every continuum in the country to some degree or another. We certainly see it here in Portland and, of course, nationally. What are your thoughts about what is driving that disparity rate? I mean, when we really talk about uh, systemic racism in the United States, that I think is really underscoring some of that disparity. But I mean, homelessness is really a housing issue. It is housing and the lack of housing. And when we look at the kind of broader context, I think for Black people living in the U.S., we have uh, historically been lived in communities that have been redlined. So we've not had access to housing. It has been challenging to maintain housing intergenerationally. We are in communities that have been impacted by things like gentrification. We've lost housing stock in many communities, especially working class communities and poor communities. And it's just, it's a complex issue. We've seen a loss of jobs and employment and reduced salaries in fields and areas where we were more likely to see Black people working. So it's complex. But this housing piece, I think is it, that is the most central piece. And it's really the loss of housing stock across communities and disproportionately in communities of color um, and especially Black communities. Yeah. And, and to add on to that. So, yes, I think it's one is about housing, right? We need more housing, period. But then also looking at it and thinking about structural racism is helpful because I'm, I'm coming from an education perspective, right, from schools. And I got interested in this as a result of kids experiencing homelessness and going to schools and also the outcomes that are connected with graduating high school um, and opportunities later on in life. A lot of the things that Norway has talked about, wealth accumulation, right, who has access to wealth accumulation, who has access to high-income jobs, those things are connected in our society to owning home, like housing. Um, and then also thinking about the institutions that also increases the likelihood of you not being able to have those things. So redlining, you think about the racial covenants that we had back in the 19, early 1900s. Uh, we think about the white flight that happened in the 1950s in a lot of our urban cities. So you combine that with uh, the devaluing and the, and the lack of wealth that Black people and Black communities have. And then you couple that with other institutions uh, contributing to that. So the increase of arresting people, right, and the mass incarceration movement that happened in, um, in the 80s, um, the increase number of individuals going to foster care, right? So in the 1970s and 80s, it was a huge influx of Black um, children being taken away from their families. And we know that aging out 
of, of the foster care system is also another really high indicator of falling into homelessness. So that's why it's really important to think about it from a structural perspective and also how the institutions are overlapping with each other because they are contributing to Black people not having the resources to get into that limited amount of housing stock that we have now. Um, and another big part of it is when we have more housing stock, how we make sure that Black people are now having an opportunity to go into quality housing. Um, because also one thing we see throughout history is that when the housing stock does get better, it's still we still have some uh, discrimination that happens in terms of where and, and what opportunities that Black people have to enter and live. And that came out a, a little bit in our actual report. Report definitely highlights that. And one of the challenges I've found is that, yes, obviously, housing is the solution to homelessness. It's a lack of affordable and accessible housing that creates the circumstances for homelessness. You know, there are two struggles that I have with that framing. One is which just because people can afford housing in lower rent areas does not mean it's housing we would want people to live in. And so, you know, how do we make sure we're also lifting up that housing quality, landlord relationships are also essential? But then how do we also talk about the, the realities and the complexities of racism in particular and keep that mm-hmm. lifted up while pushing the housing narrative? I get very worried that we're st- going to end up in this housing stock narrative and, you know, places like Los Angeles and Portland that have passed big revenue measures are going to say, look, we built the housing and there's still lots of Black people. There's still lots of Latinos who are still homeless. Why isn't this fixed? I don't know if you've thought about that at all or that framing or how to enter it. It's just one of the things that gives me heartburn <laughs> at night because I want to be like, yes, housing is the solution. But also we have to do some other things, too, particularly for people of color. Yeah. And I think um, I think it's the end. Right. And I think it's always important that we um, include that and into the conversation. Um, it's the same thing with permits for housing. Right. It's the model is important and it, and it works. However, there are because of our institutions and disparities that happen as a result of our interactions of the different interactions and layering of our institutions and also implicit bias that happens within those institutions. Discrepancies are always going to be there if we're not looking, um, if we don't have measurements to be able to gauge it. Um, So it's really important that, you know, we need more housing stock and that needs to be a priority. And that's something I think a lot of people can kind of get behind. And in addition to that, we need to also be having conversations on how do we ensure that we create this housing and also have equitable ways in which people are being housed? How do we make sure that the, the previous housing stock that we have, we're doing the renovations necessary to make sure that they're actually quality living spaces for anyone who lives there as well? And so I think those conversations have to be connected and they can't be too far apart from each other because when they become too far apart from each other, that's when the pathologizing happens, right? Now it becomes a, well, you know, we have the housing, but these people still aren't moving in. So it must be something wrong with them because we have it. They're just not taking advantage of it. And so those those conversations have to be connected. Um, But um, housing stock and those like universal type of like initiatives must be a part of the solution. So I'm going to build up this. The housing stock is important and the pieces of it that are equally important are quality, affordability, and accessibility. If you're looking to rent an apartment or rent space, 
a landlord is going to look to see whether you have first and last month's rent. And I've recently discovered in LA, potentially you have an income that covers three times the rent. Mm. We don't ask those questions when we're looking for housing for people with lived experience of homelessness. Maybe we do. I'm not seeing where we ask them, but that's the basic reality. So when we're thinking about housing, it's the type of housing that is being built. And is it housing that really meets that quality, affordability, and accessibility piece? The other is that and piece that Earl was speaking to. And when we think about race and racism, our lens is often on fixing people of color and making them better in multiple ways. Like what, what can we do to make them make people of color better? So it, racism will go away. Racism is structural. And one of the things that we did in our report was really not thinking about how do we fix black people with lived experience, but how do we fix the service sector to begin to address this structural piece. So really understanding bias in the service sector, understanding what um, we're hearing from providers about what it is like to place Black people in permanent supportive housing. Some of the decisions that they make in terms of it's easier to match Black people to communities that are predominantly Black, even though Black people are saying, I don't feel safe there. I may be Black, but that's not my community of origin. I didn't come from that community. So our lens was really just kind of understanding that process and thinking about how we can fix the process versus Black residents. That's great. And this specific point about um, what some of the residents were saying about what neighborhoods they wanted to be in or not is something I want to get into a little bit more deeply. Uh, one of the things I was wondering is that if you wanted listeners to take away three things from the report to make sure that they really, you know, your favorite points from the report, what would they be? So two of my favorite points. One point is that we think of permanent supportive housing as the solution. Once people are placed in permanent supportive housing, they are housed. And it was very interesting to hear from our Black residents that they saw permanent supportive housing as a stepping stone. They don't want to be in permanent housing for the rest of their lives. They want to go into permanent supportive housing and have that lead to uh, potentially Section 8 housing, for example. That's what some saw as more permanent housing. And then the other takeaway is our Service providers are working really very hard and they are trying to meet numbers in terms of placement. And sometimes it is easier to match people with, you know, to match Black people with Black communities or Black people with Black landlords. So some of the bias that we see is really because they are trying to meet the demands of the system. And it's not that they are themselves uh, prejudiced or, or racist. And that's an important. Point. And the kind of the 2.5 of that is both the providers and uh, Black residents talked about the importance of really treating case management 
truly treating it as a professional career and providing opportunities for promotion, but also competitive salaries across programs for case managers, because the retention piece was very important. Both residents and case managers said, when you have the high turnover, that does create challenges for Black residents. So those kind of Two and a half key takeaways for me. She went first. She uh, she, <laughs> she stole, <laughs> stole my. Sorry, said the favorite points. <laughs> so um, so I, I would I would add on to that. So I was able to to do the the interviews, and one thing that really stuck out to me was the hope and optimism that the residents um, that I talked to had about their lives and about the future. So the stepping stone thing was really important because they saw it as an opportunity for them to stabilize and then for them to thrive. And so when I was having a conversation with them, they, you know, a 55 year old uh, man was talking about he wants to get married. <laughs> He's like, I haven't given up yet. I- I'm going to I'm going to give myself a wife um, and he wants to be able to provide for his family. And so he was actually looking into trying to um, try to become an accountant and he was doing research and actually um, studying to become an accountant. Uh, because he saw that for himself. Um, another individual was, was talking about changing careers, like how she was literally, she like one of the things she wanted her case managers to do was to help her on her actual resume. So she actually could apply and actually um, change careers. Um, another woman was a grandmother and she was living in an SRO with, with no kitchen. And one of the things that was causing her a lot of stress was she grew up in a family where the matriarch was a person that everyone came to the house and they cooked and they had dinner at the dinner table. And that's something that she just doesn't have in the space she has right now. And even though she was very appreciative of the space and the opportunity to really stabilize and get off the streets, she wanted a kitchen. She wanted a table where she can bring her family together and for them to actually have, have, have dinner together. And so a big part of thinking what we need to do as researchers, and also when policymakers are thinking about this, is we need to humanize the individuals that we're talking about. We need to recognize that they're a part of families and they're not just unattached people. They may be unattached when you find them, but if you talk to them, they'll tell you like, yeah, like, you know, I have family over here. I'm waiting to get myself together so I can reunite with my family members. One case manager was talking about how one of her clients was evicted or actually willingly left after being um, threatened with eviction because he would have his son come over um, to stay over. And as a result of him having his son come over, that was was a violation of his, uh, he stayed there too long. And that was a violation of his actual um, lease. And he was like, well, if if my kid can't stay here, then I don't want to be here. And after being badgered, he ended up just leaving on his own. These are the parts of the stories that we don't we don't talk about enough. We don't humanize individuals enough. And this is what kind of leads into that pathologizing piece, right? Because we think we know what they want without asking them and having a better understanding of what their actual needs are and how we can do our best to really make sure we're supporting them in a systematic way. There's some things I want to back up on, but I want to stay with this particular thread because it stuck out to me around this question of you know, I think it gets framed as building security, right? Who gets to enter lease violations on who was staying in the building. Uh, And we had definitely found that in our studies here in Portland as well, in a couple of different ways. At the same time, your report also indicates that some people weren't feeling secure enough in buildings. And so, you know, it's this kind of tension between 
how much autonomy can the buildings actually give residents? And notice that is a very paternalistic perspective, but that is what they maintain is their legal obligation versus how do we help people feel and be safe while giving people the ability to have more autonomy in terms of who was staying and who was going? Did residents have an idea of what that could look like? Yeah. So I think a lot of time when individuals talk about security, they didn't see it in the same form that we typically talk about security, right? So they, they didn't say, oh, we know we need more cops and like security guards kind of monitoring the space. They just needed, you know, more people there to help navigate some of the different situations, right? And so like when I think about it from a family perspective or a community perspective, if, you know, if I live in a community that that is that is safe, I know my neighbors, right? my neighbors know me. They, we can navigate situations in a, in a collaborative way um, and we can help self-regulate, right? The, the different situations. And so when they were talking about kind of having more support is having someone at the front door to welcome in people, to say, hi, how everyone doing, right? If you have someone at the front door just being friendly, inviting and asking them and saying hi to people coming in and knowing who lives there, that individual can now play a role in buffering individuals that don't necessarily belong there or are loitering. Um, so having more people like that in the space could actually mitigate a lot of the issues that individuals were talking about. And so it does, or even having someone who is an actual case manager that is trained on helping to alleviate those actual issues in conflict management, having some more people like that on staff and on site could alleviate it. So when they say security in, in a lot of ways, it's not just like, a security guard or someone that's, you know, playing the role of a, of a police officer, it's more of the individuals that can help mediate situations and help build those um, kind of community um, respects and also collaboration within those spaces. Um, thank you. All right. So now to the, the big question that in many ways we probably should have done first, but we'll just do it now, is what on earth is permanent supportive housing? Because even just the way that y'all explained it is different than how we talk about it in Portland and how I think about it. And as an urban planner, I use totally different words and the homelessness services providers use. So give me the wisdom. Tell me what this thing is. I will say, who knows in LA County? And we one of our recommendations was for LA, for LASA, to think about just documenting what is permanent supportive housing, how they define it. Because we discovered there's so many different types of housing that falls in to this broad term. And then when you're trying to understand what type of housing works best for what people or what type of housing leads to people falling out of being stably housed, it's hard to determine. Yeah, in our interviews, just talking to participants and, and case managers, we were able to create a typology of about one, two, like three is a matrix of a three to three to seven matrix, right? So it, it depended on terms of like housing configuration, if you had a kitchen or not, if you had a kitchen and a bathroom, you had like two bedroom apartments, you had studios, um, you had like clustered apartments, you had what does clustered housing. mean? What does clustered apartment mean? Got to be very specific as we get into this part. Bedrooms yeah. I get, bathrooms and so forth, but clustering and congregate and project yeah, exactly. so like yes. having Yes. We're into some oh, buzzy exactly. terms there. 
Yeah, so it's like a it's like a studio, but it has like a common space. So you don't have your own bathroom, you don't have your own um, your own kitchen, right? So you have your own like space, but then you have these common areas that you have oh, to like do. a dorm, more like exactly. a dorm, yeah. almost like, a, like dorm. a college dorm. Exactly. You wouldn't call that an SRO. No, a single room occupancy building. No. Okay. Yeah. So it, it yeah. So it becomes it, so it becomes that, and then also who owns it, right? So is it being managed by an actual like service provider? Is it being managed by independent private uh, manager? Um, is it a joint you know relationship? And then also funding sources, right? So every even if you might have a, a one building, but the beds in that building might be um, uh, allocated for different sources. So some might be connected to veteran funding. So. That room is for veterans. Some other might be for the mental health agency in your in your space. So there's just so much diversity across what we have in terms of um, permanent housing that it becomes really impossible to really do quality research on them because there's so much variation. And so creating like a typology so we have a better understanding of what these certain you know housing stocks are will allow for more you know, rigorous research on, on which ones are most effective for which populations and for what duration. So when residents were talking about a seeing permanent supportive housing as a stopping point, what was it that in, do you think distinguished PSH from Section 8 housing for them? It's complex because there are so many different types of vouchers, right? So you have city vouchers, LA County, you have the county vouchers, and then you also have the federal vouchers. And then you also have a voucher that's connected to permanent supportive housing, right? Well, um, that's connected to services. One thing that came up a lot was um, individuals wanting to exit from the permanent supportive housing voucher program because it's one, it's restrictive in terms of where they can live. And then two, it also has additional case managers that they felt weren't actually being helpful. So it's another level of like accountability. And then in addition to that, there is a stigma around mental health, right? So a lot of individuals wanted to get that stigma of of having to go in and they're being connected to a mental health issue away. So that's one of the reasons why some individuals wanted to switch um, their vouchers. Another big reason is they wanted a voucher that gave them more flexibility to move different places. So for example, they might say, well, the voucher, the, the amount of money that I'm able to use with my voucher limits where I can live in L.A., and it limits me to a, a housing stock in a community that I don't want to live in. But if I was able to go to San Bernardino, if I was able to go somewhere else, then I, I could actually live there with the voucher and have a better quality of living. Um, and so they wanted a voucher that would allow them to have more flexibility in terms of where they can live. So they can they can use that voucher to live somewhere more affordable, maybe closer to other types of other family members that they um, that they have connections to. Um, so that, those are some of the reasons why people wanted to switch those vouchers and one in order to get more independence and not have the, the stigma around the mental health component to it. And then two, having more flexibility in terms of where they actually can live. What of these, I mean, were any of these building places where services were required or was it just the caseworkers really weren't supporting people in a way that they wanted to be supported? Everyone that we talked to, the agencies were using the housing first model. No one was required to do anything other than having um, some check-ins with their case managers but they had access to the different uh, different services. And the quality of those services really depended on the capacity of the agencies they worked with. So you brought up the other big term, housing first. Would either one of you like to define housing first? Well, I'm going to give that to Noita. 
she was an OG on that one. <laughs> My understanding of the housing first model is really to provide housing for an individual with lived experience of homelessness and worry about any other issues once they are placed in housing. So if a person has mental health issues, person has substance abuse issues, those will be addressed once they are placed in housing. And an attempt will be made to link them to services, but services are not required. This is then um, more broadly explained as permanent supportive housing, where people are told that they have a house permanently or a place to live permanently with supportive services if they would like them. Nora is disagreeing with me by the look on her face. I know. I'm just not sure. I mean, it's, and, and this is where I put my researcher hat on full disclosure. Housing first is not an area that I've done a deep dive in as a researcher, but I think really understanding you have housing first conceptually, what it is supposed to look like, but how does that get operationalized on the ground and really understanding what's going on? on in these different settings that follow this model. I'm sure someone's done the research, maybe, but it's kind of what we think of is a good idea, how it gets carried out. It's not always the same. Yeah, it's this whole fidelity to the model concept. Absolutely. You know, in, in our continuum conversations, it's been, well, can we say capital H, capital F, or is it lowercase h? And I'm like, but what is the difference? Like, how is this being operationalized? And then similarly, talking to all of the different programs, not all permanent supportive housing, housing first, but even if we aren't all doing housing first, like, what are the differences that matter? So, yeah. So, I mean, probably the easier way to say it is like, there is a housing unit made available and supportive services made available. And that may be the broadest definition that we can kind of agree on. Yes, I would agree. I'm thrilled to see y'all really trying to think this through. Earl, you want to jump in? Yeah, I was going to say, um, and also just contrasting it to previously how how things were being done, right? So before it was, uh, before you even get, even have opportunity to get housing, you need to have your your um, sobriety, you need to have, you know, you need to have a, a certain amount of money saved up, you need to have all these different things that we we subscribe as being um, essential for you before you even get to housing. And so the idea of like the housing first model came from like, no, we're not gonna wait till those things are actually um, established. We're gonna house you and then help you get those things established. Um, so like conceptually, that's like the idea of it, but in terms of how it's implemented, it varies so much. It, it, be, it requires it to be flexible because the housing stocks are very, very different. The needs of everyone that, that's going into it is very, very different. And also I think a really important part to it too is we have individuals who are falling into homelessness as a result of economic reasons, as a result of racial discrimination that don't have severe mental health issues going in and get, you know, some types of mental health issues as a result of the experience of being homeless that are going into permanent support housing as well. And there hasn't been a lot of conversation on how are we helping support that population because that is a population that's, you know, we have so many individuals in LA County that fell into homelessness for the first time, right? And housing first, or a permanent housing is one of the 
best in like very few one of the you know best options for them in order to, for them to get housed because rapid rehousing how we use it now is just not enough support for a lot of individuals and so we don't have enough options for individuals to even to even utilize which is making it even harder for permanent housing type of approaches to work because we have a lot of individuals that probably could uh, have light touches but we don't have any programs that allow them to be able to get the housing they need with a light touch. And historically, because I've been doing this for a while, historically, Black people were least likely to have the mental health issues and the substance abuse issues. And it was much more tied to the economic piece and some of the discrimination piece as well. We know that, but we still don't fully address that in our work. We try, but it's still not fully addressed. So a housing first kind of speaks to that, but it's a challenge. I agree. And we see the same conversation here in Portland. And we have some additional layers of complexity. I I mean, I think this is also still similar in LA, whereas you don't have a huge population of people who are white and then several smaller groups of people of color because your Latino population, your non-Black Latino population is so large in Los Angeles. We even just have the data issue of, of being able to show experiences in HMIS for our different communities of color. We only have a little bit of time left and I want to be able to talk about the spatial component a little bit more. As an urban planner, this is a hot topic, right? We've had moving to opportunity, investing in neighborhoods, which do we do? How do we ask people their preferences? Where should we build the affordable housing or obtain the buildings or protect the buildings? It's actually really complicated. And so I wondered if you could expand more on on what you were seeing in terms of this, people being bounded by neighborhoods that they weren't from or necessarily wanting to be in because they were Black versus neighborhoods that they would want to be in? And then how does this rub up against policy when trying to actually develop affordable housing? I mean, that's a huge, huge question. It's the most um, important question in my world. I know. And I'm trying, to think, <laughs> I'm trying to think about our data and really kind of extrapolating a bit from it. Part of the issue where when we're hearing, when we heard from Black residents about not wanting to be in uh, what were predominantly Black neighborhoods and communities, it's really around resources and services and what's there. And what we're really talking about, we are talking about communities that are resource poor versus communities that are resource rich. And Black residents, and this kind of gets back to what Earl was talking about, we are, they are, they are human beings with agency and awareness. And they know this community, if I go to this and people talk, I, you know, it's like we, we act like homeless people are like in a vacuum and are not people, but they're just like you and I, and they're, they're talking, they're sharing information and they know if I get placed here, I'm going to have access to these resources. If I get placed somewhere else, I'm not going to have access to those types of resources. So 
in some of these conversations, if we could move kind of beyond like black versus white, but really think about kind of resource rich versus resource poor. And what are, you know, what are the amenities in those resource rich communities? Parks, grocery stores, different types of housing, access to public transportation. I mean, there are lots of things that are resources that make them better communities to live in. People with lived experience of homelessness are aware of that. And that, if we just extrapolate a bit from our data and what people have said, that's also what they're saying. I want to live in a good community that's going to help me stay housed, get employed, and to be able to live my life. Yeah, and and just to add on to that, you know, one of the things with the individual we talked about was, you know, do I live in an area where my kids can come visit me, yeah. right? And they and they're going to feel safe. Um, well, I think about it from like a family perspective. Schools, right? Um, my dissertation is on um, students who are experiencing homelessness and were able to successfully graduate high school. And one thing that came up was the advocacy that parents had in terms of making sure they were they were identified as a living in a certain community when they were homeless in order to make sure that kid had opportunity to go to a better school. And so these are all, you know, these are all conversations and these are all things that everyone thinks about, including those who are being displaced. And there, there are certain situations where someone's from a community and they want to stay in that community. There are also certain situations where we're not talking about, like, I think one mis- uh, misnomer is that we're saying that, oh, South Los Angeles was the area that no one wanted to live in. No, it was the, the lowest quality housing stock in South LA that Black people were being placed into. And these areas were, were, were areas that were like the hyper crime areas, um, high levels of prostitution. These were areas, these are blocks that they were like, I don't want to live on that block because I understand that block is not a, a good place for live to live at. And that's not a long term option. So it wasn't just like, a you know, a, a whole area. It was very, very like narrow communities that they recognize as it, within the community recognized as not being safe places. And so it's really important to kind of connect that. And policy decisions need to look at it from a holistic perspective in terms of not just the housing, but what are the other infrastructure we're putting in place that allows an individual to thrive? And that can't be disconnected from this conversation we're having in terms of housing placement. And so, like, you know, I think that's a really important piece of it is the housing needs, we need the housing, but we also need to be considerate of what's around that housing to really have, act as buffers and opportunities for the people who live there. I think this last point that you're getting at is so important to emphasize why we need to talk to people about their preferences and desires and fears, because it people might use a shorthand and say, you know, I live in North Portland. I don't want to move to North Portland. But what they're really saying is, I don't want to live in that housing that I know exists on the 82nd block of whatever, because I know what that means. Whereas, you know, maybe if it's another use unit and a few blocks away, it changes the conversation, but also just that importance of choice, right? People being able to have those choices on whether they want to live in a neighborhood that has had historically less investment or a neighborhood that has had historically more investment. I mean, we all spent years making those delightful opportunity maps. We certainly know where (laughs) the investment rich areas are, opportunity rich areas are. Marissa, you've hit on a really important point from our study, and that's really 
our focus was on giving people with lived experience a sense of agency and really centering the work and the voices of people with lived experience, as Earl pointed out. Often, I think as researchers, when we're trying to, quote unquote, solve a social problem, we don't think about asking the people who are perceived as having the problem. And often people know, having lived through it, the best ways to solve it. Or we'll let you have the last word as a great way to end our chat together. I want to be mindful of time. Thank you all so much. This is a great conversation. And it's just, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk more and, and share your knowledge. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us. That was Dr. Norwita Milburn and Earl Edwards, researchers from UCLA, talking about key findings from their recent study, Inequity in the Permanent Supportive Housing System in Los Angeles, Scale, Scope, and Reasons for Black Residents' Return to Homelessness. The higher rates of homelessness and inequitable outcomes mirror trends across the country. To learn more, including finding a copy of the report, go to our website at www.understandinghomelessness.org. Thanks for listening.